Welcome to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran of KGNU, as always, my co-host Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore, joining me this morning with another local author. We're always so happy to have Colorado authors joining us. Who are we speaking with and who have we been reading for the month of November? We're reading The Cape Doctor by E.J. Levy. And um, this is a wonderful book, and it's uh, about a doctor in the early 1800s, very early in kind of modern medical history. And it's, it's about uh, a young Irish girl who becomes a man in order to have a medical career and really um, have opportunities in that world. Well, we are delighted to have E.J. Levy join us here. We're at the Boulder Bookstore, and it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Maven and Arson. It is a delight, just a total pleasure to be here with you. So as Arson said, this is a fictionalized version of a real-life person. And uh, it's called The Cape Doctor because it is set in Cape Town in South Africa. And it was there that you actually first heard of the real doctor that inspired you to write the story. So take us through the inspiration behind the book. Thank you so much. Yeah, about a decade ago, I accompanied my then partner to an aerospace conference. And uh, we flew from DC and on the flight, I read two lines in a guidebook about Dr. James Barry, who was this prodigy of a physician, an Irish army surgeon who practiced in the Cape roughly from 1816 to 1824, 28. Um, and uh, you know, was, was such a genius that Napoleon himself called for Dr. Barry, improved healthcare for the marginalized, performed the six, first successful cesarean in uh, known in Africa, was caught in a sodomy scandal with the aristocratic governor of Cape Town, and only after death in 1865, um, having risen to the level of inspector general for military hospitals, which is the rank of a brigadier, brigadier general, um, was it discovered that the famous Dr. Barry had in fact been, um, as the layer out said, a perfect female who'd carried a child. And so I was captivated. Um, and as I walked around Cape Town while my partner was in conferences, um, in meetings, um, I just began to have this kind of voice in my head that began with, she died so I might live. So I felt very haunted. And a lot of what I, you know, kind of took notes and speculated on what would Dr. Barry have thought of the government house or the prison or the leper colony or the botanical riches of that region. Um, and the novel um, kind of began to unfurl in my head there. Um, and when I got back, I started to read about the doctor and found that uncannily, a lot of my speculation proved accurate. Um, so that's how the book began. Well, that line, she died so I might live, Margaret, I owe her my life. That's the first part of the book. So we're actually going to get you to read from that pretty early on because I think it just sets it up so well. Delighted, delighted. Thank you. So this is um, chapter one, Fortunate Son. She died so I might live, Margaret. I owe her my life. Not a day goes by when I don't think of it, of her, as not a day goes by when I don't think of him. She died so I might live. But isn't that the lot of women, to sacrifice as our Lord was said to have done? 
Few speak of Mary's sacrifice, of course. That, we are to assume, was unexceptional. To martyr oneself for others is the expected lot of mothers and daughters. It's rarer in sons except in war. So naturally, given the choice, I chose to be a son. Given the choice, who wouldn't? There are so many things we do not know until it is too late, among them that it's never too late. The American ambassador Franklin said it best, quote, I want to live so I might see how it turns out, unquote. We do. I can see that from where I am now, wherever that is in this almost afterlife of imagination or fact, who can say for sure which it is? I can see that my life will be a scandal and an inspiration. Charles Dickens will write of me and Twain, even Havelock Ellis. I will be a riddle the generations will try to answer, a riddle I am trying to answer now. When I was a boy, I was told that when I began a story to begin at the beginning and continue to the end, so I shall. The question, of course, is where it all began. Where does any story start? Where did mine? The ending, alas, is always all too clear. But to understand my beginning, you must understand her end, Margaret's. And Margaret was the little girl from Cork in Ireland who then went on to become the real Dr. Barry in your book, it's Dr. Perry. So take us back to that because throughout the book, there is just constant examination of how gender was an obstacle for Dr. Perry to achieve everything that Dr. Perry wanted to achieve. And it goes back to when Margaret was a little girl. And so take us back to, well, the fictionalized Margaret, but also, you know, her parallel life, the real Margaret. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, in the it's taken a century and a half um, for biographers to discover that the real Dr. Barry was actually Margaret Ann Bulkley, born around 1795 in Cork, Ireland. Um, but uh, her family was bankrupted, Margaret's, by an uncle, I'm sorry, by a brother, and she sought in London um, the assistance of her uncle, who was a famous historical painter. And it was, he was no help, the uncle, but his friends were, um, and his friends were a set of um, aristocrats and revolutionaries, um, all of whom believed in the radical idea uh, that girls and women deserved to be educated. And some of them had been good friends with Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, so through their help, um, Margaret was able to pass as become a boy um, in clothing, in name, um, and with their, uh, their vouching for her, she became James Barry in my novel, Jonathan Perry, um, and entered the best medical school in the world in 1809, so 40 years before the, the first woman known would become, would receive a medical degree, Elizabeth Blackwell in the US, and um, more than 50 years uh, before the first woman would receive, would be licensed to practice medicine in the UK. But the book wrestles a lot with gender and what it is to be categorized, to have our humanity categorized, and how that 
does and doesn't do service to the complexity of our interior lives. So in this case, you know, I think Margaret Bulkley was um, sort of at, like Shakespeare's sister in Vir Virginia Woolf's um, A Room of One's Own. You know, what is it to be, you know, what is the horror of being born uh, a genius in a female body? And in this case, um, Margaret became James, or Jonathan in my book, um, to slip that particular noose. It is so interesting to read such a real in-depth examination of gender at this time where I think as a society we're becoming more aware of gender as a social construct, of the limitations of placing binary gender you know, ideas on people. And I know this was a bit of an issue uh, because biographies of the real Dr. Barry, you know, some folks said, well, Dr. Barry was a trans man. And so we have to be very careful about the pronouns. Now, this is a fictionalized work, of course, but you've chosen to write Dr. Perry really from the perspective of a woman. D did you, I know there was some pushback on that, but was this something that you grappled with or did you think about maybe writing with male pronouns when Margaret became Dr. Perry? It's such a good question and thanks for asking it. Yeah, it broke my heart because as somebody who spent my 30s being read as male and who really experienced the remarkable kind of dazzlingly wonderful privileges that that entails where, you know, professors in my grad program would say, we expect greatness of you, all you have to do is prepare yourself for greatness. And it's like, nobody said that when I had long hair and was read as female. Um, so, uh, so it's an issue close to my heart. Um, the, the fact is that we know a lot about um, Dr. Berry's actual life in terms of medical practice. We know a little about Margaret's feelings about her own sex and gender from letters that she wrote before she became James, where she talks about, you know, says to her brother, if, if I weren't a girl, I'd be a soldier, you know, and um, I know you're not going to listen to my advice because I'm just a girl. So she really understood how constricted her life was um, by her sex, by her gender. Um, but the fact is, we do not know what, um, what either Margaret or James felt about their sex or gender. What we do know is that having, um, having the identity of Dr. Perry, Dr. Barry, was the only ticket to freedom and financial liberty. So that was very precious, and I think there are a lot of reasons that um, the doctor didn't want to be exposed, as it were. Um, it would have cost intimate friends um, who were implicated in the scandal that broke in 1824 in Cape Town, the sodomy scandal. But it also, most importantly, would have cost Margaret James, um, Margaret Jonathan, their liberty. So um, if I might say in terms of the scandal, the, my own scandal, the controversy about the book, that I'm struck that three women in the 21st century have written about or proposed projects about Dr. Barry. Rachel Holmes wrote a wonderful biography that um, posits that Dr. Barry was intersex. The um, actress Rachel Weiss proposed a film in which Dr. Barry would be seen as, performed as gender fluid, which is what I tend to accord with. And then there's a wonderful biography that came out in 2016 by two men that is Dr. James Barry, a woman ahead of her time. 
Now I underscore the subtitle, A Woman Ahead of Her Time, and the fact that it's written by two men, because it got no blowback. There was no criticism. And there's been considerable criticism of Rachel Holmes and of Rachel Weiss and of me um, before my book was published. Since the book has been published, there has not been. But, um, but it was costly. And, and for me, the cost is not a personal cost, but it's that it's heartbreaking to me that we don't know this name. I mean, the reason that I was compelled to write the book was partly because I felt haunted, but partly um, because I thought, how in the world do I not, have I not heard of Margaret Ann Bulkley and Dr. James Miranda Berry? We should be shouting their names from the rooftops. This should be part of medical history and literary history. You go in and tell the story from the first person. I found that very interesting. I, I was listening to an interview recently with Colm Toybin, who's written a book about Thomas Mann, and they asked him about that, and he said that he tries to enter his subject's spirit. So I was wondering, what was your, how did you get inside uh, the head of such a complicated person um, in history? And had you ever thought about writing it from a different angle? It's such a great question. Point of view, um, both the fact that it's first person and the fact that it's post-mortal <laughs> were, were a little problematic, but I did feel haunted. It's the voice that presented itself to me. And I had just moved out here um, to Colorado at the end of 2012 and was in a writing group and trying to charm them, you know? So I wanted to come up with um, interesting chapters. And these, the first couple of chapters just seemed to write themselves um, because I had the voice in my head. So in part, it's first person because I felt haunted and because that's the voice that I heard and it was very loud in my ear. And the wonderful writer Stuart Dybeck um, says that story is always talking, we just have to listen. So first person isn't my favorite point of view to use. I think it's, you know, it is unreliable and constricted, but I felt that was, um, was the only, the only means by which to tell this story because that was the voice in my ear. At the same time, when I started to flag in finishing the book, I started to dream of, um, I had a dream of a midwife saying, I was very, very pregnant, saying, you've got to push, you've got to push, and I was like, no, you know, I'm, I don't, I've got time. And I woke up and I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is about the book. And then a couple of weeks later, I dreamt of Dr. Barry screaming at me. And I thought, ah, I've got to finish the book. So, um, you know, I'm not the only one who's felt kind of haunted by Barry, but I think in this case, first person is also a way to explore how we see ourselves differs from what we are actually doing. And I think that this is a book partly about choices and what they cost us. And so I think being able to see it from the doctor's point of view was really necessary. Another reason to write this book is that this is a, a figure in history who has often been written about in trivializing ways as a kind of spectacle, as a kind of object of speculation, as a, a bit of a joke. So that the, there's a short story by Dickens, there's a sketch, a nonfiction sketch by Twain. Um, there's been a kind of bug under, under the microscope aspect. And one reason I wanted to write the book was to return to Margaret James, Margaret Jonathan, subjectivity um, and the humanity 
of that first-person perspective and to be able to argue against a couple of centuries of people um, trivializing this life and claiming to know about it. We don't know. We don't know the intimate story. We know a lot about the medicine, very little about the intimate life. And so I wanted to kind of re revive that and give back to them voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was reading it, I felt, yeah, I often feel this when I'm reading a historical novel. There, there is tension in the writing between wanting to have a fidelity to the historical record, which in this case is where was the doctor, what did the doctor accomplish, what was the scandals in the doctor's lives. But at the same time, you're, you're an artist. You're writing a novel, and you have to have some fidelity to where you want to go as a writer. And so how does that play out in, in a book like this, where you have to make some decisions? Like the biggest decision, it seemed to me, that you had to make that really uh, influenced the whole course of the book was where was the pregnancy in the doctor's life? That, that's not known but you have to put it somewhere. So how much of that is you trying to figure out through the historical record or you as an artist kind of like saying for the story, you know, I think it should go here. Like talk about that process because much of the book and the plot of the book does hang on how that pregnancy happens and what happens subsequently. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, I mean, I'm struck again that that the, the perspective, the subject position of those of us looking back is really reflected in the work, right? So that when these wonderful biographies, biographers, um, the male biographers who wrote Dr. James Berry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time, Dupree's and Dronfield, they speculate that Margaret was um, subject as a child to incest and rape um, and therefore had uh, not not a, a younger sister, but actually a daughter that the family passed off as a younger sister. I don't see any evidence for that, but I think that if you assume that female sexuality is a matter of um, uh, a certain kind of subordination, um, then that makes sense. You know that this pregnancy could only have come about through through violence. Um, not through choice. It's not how I read the letters of Margaret as a girl. It's not how I read the sequence of events. But as a novelist, it's a really happy circumstance that we know a lot about the public life that I've been pretty true to. And I've tried to know where I, where I break from um, the timeline. But so little about the intimate life that we simply don't know. We do know that that Barry took leaves that could, that the doctor took leaves that could have derailed their career um, for Mauritius and to sail to England, um, and that those weren't granted. Um, so later, Dr. Barry said that he had gone to Mauritius to deal with a cholera epidemic, but word of that hadn't yet arrived in Cape Town, so it's not really a very credible claim. The fact that the doctor took that leave but shortly before Lord Somerset, Lord Somerton in the novel, sailed for England to get a second wife, to me is, um, is interesting. But the delight 
as so that's why I I see it in those terms. For me, the delight of this life as um, a subject for historical fiction is that there's so much, um, so many gaps to write into, to imagine into, that that speculation is really at the heart of writing anything, but especially writing historical fiction. So. That's author E.J. Levy, who is joining us today at the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. And E.J.'s latest novel is The Cape Doctor. It's a fictionalised account of the real life Dr. James Barry, who was born Margaret Bulkley in Ireland. And Dr. Barry went on to really be a revolutionary medical practitioner. And I was fascinated by the medicine aspect of this and the social justice aspect of this. You're bringing in slavery because this was at a time when slavery, I think, had been outlawed but was still happening. Social justice, we've talked about you know, gender as an issue, but Dr. Barry and Dr. Perry in your book was very concerned about the welfare of prisoners, about the welfare of leper, leper colonies and really advocated for those on the margins of society. And I found that such a fascinating aspect of the book, the social justice mentality and the social justice aspect. And to look at what we're dealing with now, the politicization of medicine back then, and we're living through it now and there are so many things we have not learned in like the 150 it's years. really true. I think that was both part of what um, was heartening about this was the questions of medical justice, of, um, of social justice of many kinds, um, of women's rights were at the forefront then and as now. So it felt timely, but I also thought, whoa, baby, that's, you know, 200 years ago and we're still in this loop um, and so I'm heartened and disheartened by that it's um, the doctor was really so remarkably ahead of their time um, and was a great um, uh, advocate and this is in their their um, recorded papers um, they fought hard for for um, justice in terms of reform so that, um, you know, patent medicines that were murderous couldn't be passed off as medicine, um, that there had to be licensing, that there had to be regulation, um, was really, the doctor, the doctor was really ahead of their time in terms of seeing the importance of treating a community's health, not the individual body. Although it's, they were ahead of, um, you know, germ, um, germs weren't recognized yet, but um, they maintained a degree of cleanliness that, that um, no doubt contributed to the successful performance of the cesarean, for which is one of the things for which they're known. Um, so um, I speculate that part of the, the attention to cleanliness may have been born of a need to hide regular menstruation. You know, you better, um, you better cover your tracks well if your life depends on it, as theirs did. Um, so but they really were remarkably ahead of their time and did such good, you know, finding a botanical treatment, that, an effective botanical treatment for syphilis and gonorrhea, um, and um, 
reforming the leper colony, um, re reforming care, health care in prisons, um, all of that. They were a vaccination, vaccination inspector of all things. So um, they really are a remarkable figure um, and, and, and an example of what an individual with um, can accomplish, even in a system that is um, troubled. And I guess I got to say that part of the, for me, part of the question is how to be an ethical person in a system that's predicated on horror. And so in Dr. Barry's case, in Cape Town, there were enslaved people everywhere. And the, the project of colonial expansion was underway and spearheaded by somebody the doctor loved, Lord Somerset, Lord Somerton, the governor. Um, so how do we wrestle with that? How can we be ethical people in a situation where we know our comfort is directly predicated on um, the disenfranchisement and um, material horror of others, whether this is in terms of you know social inequality, uh, racial injustice, or climate injustice. So anyway, I love this character, and it was a joy to spend time writing them. In that answer, you also talked about your other character that's very complex, Lord Somerset, who's a very interesting character. And it was through, there was some, you know, he, he kind of endorsed some of the doctor's ideas, which would allow the doctor some more leeway that perhaps the doctor would otherwise have in the colony. Maybe talk about Somerset and also that scandal that, and how that must have affected the whole colonial government. I mean, that, that must have been a huge scandal to have a sodomy scandal like that. But at the same time, they, they were very close. They were, must have been seen together all the time in public. And the doctor kind of had free reign in a way that you seemed like you wouldn't expect somebody in the doctor's position to have as far as healing people and going to the prisons and all those things. Yeah, I mean, this is a life really, a kind of study as well in entrance into the upper class and how much that depends on mentorship, friendship, good luck. In London, in becoming Dr. James Barry, Margaret had the help of her uncle's friends who were very powerful. In Cape Town, it was Lord Somerton. And pretty shortly after the doctor arrived in, um, in Cape Town, they successfully treated the governor's daughter and saved her life, and then later saved Lord Somerton's life, Lord Somerset in life, in real life. And that cemented the bond. And the governor was the guiding figure in Cape Town. And so the fact that Dr. Berry was able to accomplish as much as they were rests very heavily on the fact that they had kind of the unqualified backing and love of, of the governor. So to be accused of sodomy at that time was um, to face potentially a death sentence. So it was a big deal that um, the doctor didn't come out, didn't sort of throw off the guise of James and say, here I am, Margaret, to beat that rap. But it was reverberant, and it really helped end the career of Lord Somerton as governor um, in Cape Town and was debated in London and Parliament. It was very consequential and speaks, you know, there have been rumors before the placard uh, was placed on a bridge that then led to the scandal. There had been rumors about the governor and Lord Somerton. And, you know, the fact is the doctor had an apartment 
in the governor's compound. So um, they were very close, and I think that must have been very heady, even where they diverged politically. I think there was deep love, and there is evidence of that in the letters that Dr. Barry left. One thing that's interesting, as Dr. the actual Dr. Barry was dying, a case of letters was sent from his deathbed. And we don't know what it contained or to whom it was sent. But it seems to me very likely that if there was a love affair beyond deep friendship, as it seems to me there was between Lord Somerset and Dr. Barry, that that case may well contain the evidence of that. But these were public people with a rich private life that in some ways happily gets to remain private. Well, E.J. Levy has been our guest at the Radio Book Club. Her latest novel is The Cape Doctor, a really fascinating, fictionalised version of a very, very fascinating real-life doctor. And we do encourage our listeners to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already a subscriber, because you're going to get some bonus content. We're going to talk a lot more with E.J. Levy in just a moment in the after hours at the Radio Book Club portion. Stay tuned for that. In the meantime, E.J., we'll say goodbye to our radio audience and thank you very much for being with us thank you so much Maeve thank you so much Arson. it's really been just a joy and I hope people will take an interest in Dr. Barry and in Margaret Margaret Ann Bulkley as we always do at the end of the Radio Book Club we encourage listeners to read along with us so what are we reading for the month of December Arson? we're going to read a collection of short stories by a Colorado author we're going to read Mixed Company by Jenny Shank um, Jenny somebody I've known for a long time. She's been in the publishing business. She's had previous books. So, um, you know, very excited to bring her on to the show. So do read along with us. You can find out more information about that book at news.kgnu.org. And as always, subscribe to the podcast and don't miss an episode and get some bonus content as well. For KGNU and the Radio Book Club, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of The Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.